Do you struggle with concentration? Have you ever thought of your brain health long-term? Bomar Nutrition is revolutionizing the nootropic and cognitive health industry with sharp nootropic powder and patent-pending bright daily capsules, powered by NeuroBloom. If you struggle with focusing, think of Sharp as brain food that supports concentration. Sharp works with your natural brain chemistry to provide a heightened sense of well-being that can delay cognitive decline and also increase mood. Bomar Sharp tastes amazing and comes in many different flavors, available in caffeinated and non-caffeinated versions. While Sharp is a short-term aid in cognitive health, think of Bright Daily Capsules as a way to improve overall brain health and prevent cognitive decline long-term. As we age, so does our brain. Supplementing with Bright has the potential to delay this aging process and helps your brain function optimally. Stay ahead of the curve and order yours today at bomarnutrition.com and save $5 off with code GENIUS5. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have a professor, Henrik Moritzen. He's a visiting professor in the Department of Chemistry. He's a permanent full professor in the Department of Biology and Environmental Sciences at University of Oldenburg in Germany. And we're going to talk about magnetoreception and navigation in uh, vertebrates, uh, quantum effects in uh, birds and other animals. So, Henrik, thank you for coming. Well, thank you for inviting me. Yeah, this is a really interesting subject. What's your background and how did you get involved in um, quantum biology? <laughs> well, if you had told me that uh, 30 years ago, I would have said you would be crazy. I mean, I've been interested in, in animals and birds since I was about 10 years old. And I was a very active bird watcher since I was... 10, 12 years old. I started uh, running around with a one kilo heavy mobile phone and was called anytime a rare bird turned up anywhere in Denmark. And I tried to see as many different birds in Denmark as possible when I was a kid. But at some stage, I started wondering when I was looking at some bird from Mongolia or China or North America, what went wrong in that bird's head so that it turned up in Denmark. And I started reading a little bit about the navigation mechanisms and so on. And I realized that at that time, there was quite a lot of behavioral experiments done. And I'm a behavioral biologist training. But there was very, very little known about the mechanisms inside the birds. How far were some of these birds traveling? Well, 10,000 kilometers, I presume. Yeah. I mean, the ones that go to the southern end of Africa, they, they travel very far. And also the ones that come from China to Europe or from North America, they have also traveled very far, most of them. So how did you first get the idea about um, magnetoreception? Where did that come from? Well, when I started looking into how birds navigate, it has been known since the 1960s that they, they use the Earth's magnetic field, at least as a compass. And it's also known that they use the sun and the stars as a compass. And it was also clear that they used a whole bunch of different cues for maps. But if you looked at all of those cues, then, you know, we know how birds see, we know how they smell, we know how they hear. 
but we didn't know how they sensed the Earth's magnetic field. So that seems like the most interesting unsolved question in that field from my perspective. And that was why I got interested in that. Well, when you say they, they are able to know north from south, how do they do that, first of all? That is the uh, compass of the Earth work for them. Well, I mean, they can do that in at least three different ways. So they learn the movement of the sun across the sky or apparent movement of the sun across the sky when they are, and they can use, therefore, a sun compass to identify where north is. They also look for rotating light dots in the sky and the center of rotation, which is the north star on the northern hemisphere. They define as north for their star compass. And then based on these celestial references, they then determine, basically, they, they look for the inclination angle, smallest inclination angle between the magnetic field lines on the Earth's surface. And that direction is south, and the biggest angle between the magnetic field lines and the Earth's surface is north. So they use the magnetic field to identify a reference direction. So where's the north-south axis? And then they have an inherited migratory direction that they then use to fly in the direct direction. How, how strong or weak is the magnetic field? The fact that they can pick it up, is that amazing in itself? Yeah, it's, it's not so easy to understand how a biological system can sense a magnetic field that's only about 50,000 nanotesla or 50 microtesla strong. I mean, obviously, a compass needle can pick it up. And so there are some rows of magnetite crystals known from magnetotactic bacteria which act more or less like compass needles. And that was how most people thought it would work for a very long time. So is it the microbiome of the birds that helps them navigate or one of the ways in which they navigate? Or is it primarily their cells, you know, how the cells of the bird are? Yeah, well, I mean, a lot of people have had this idea that it could be magnetotactic bacteria somehow ingested by the birds, but nobody has been able to find them in consistent locations. And, you know, to have a sensory system in a bird you need the sensory cells to be located in the same location in every individual of a given species. And so far, nobody has been able to find any magnetotactic bacteria or magnetite structures in any bird species in a consistent location. Okay. So what structures inside the bird are thought to allow it to navigate? Well, it turned out that Birds can only use their magnetic compass with, when certain wavelengths of light is available in the room. And it would be a little bit odd if it was a magnetite crystal. It shouldn't really care whether there was blue light, red light, or yellow light in the room because the magnetite crystal should orient to the magnetic field anyway. But it turns out that birds are significantly better at navigating with their magnetic compass if they have blue light available compared to if they have like yellow or red light available. And so several physicists have thought about how magnetic sensing could potentially be light dependent. And it is so that Klaus Schulten, a famous German physicist that worked in the US for most of his life, he suggested already in the 1970s that a quantum mechanical electron spin-based mechanism could potentially detect Earth strength magnetic fields if certain characteristics were or requirements were fulfilled. Well, what do you think that the different, I guess, from the sun, are you saying that birds will tend to navigate, let's say, in the early morning hours only when the sunlight has certain frequencies? Is that what happens? No, I mean, these little long-distance migratory birds, they migrate at night. So they are night migratory. The Most of the time they are migrating, there is no sun available. But when they migrate during the day, they learn how the 
sun apparently move across the sky and they know that the sun goes down approximately in the west and they can use these, this information to navigate as long as the sun is available. Most of the night, the sun is not available and there they can use the stars and all the magnetic field. And it is so that as long as they have either sun, star or magnetic field available, they're okay. You can take away any two of those and the birds can still orient with the remaining third one. But of course, in nature, it's overcast sometimes. And when it's overcast, they can't use the stars or the sun. So then there's only the magnetic field available. Yeah, that's really interesting. So all three mechanisms are not necessary at the same time? No, they, they don't have to work at the same time. As long as one of them is working, the birds are fine. So do the birds you study, do most of them migrate at night? Do some migrate during the yes. day? Almost all small night migratory songbirds, they migrate at night. And there are several reasons for that. One is probably prevents overheating because they do a lot of exercise when they fly. Another thing is that the, there's not predators available. At, uh, there are very few predators at night that could eat them. And birds have an amazing ability, at least some birds have an amazing ability that they can sleep with one half of their brain and be awake with the other half. And because of this, we observe that in the migratory seasons, the birds can both fly a large proportion of the night and feed during the day. And since you can't feed during the night when you are on the ground, that's maybe another reason why these birds who have a very high turnover that they actually migrate at night. Do you struggle with concentration? Have you ever thought of your brain health long-term? Bomar Nutrition is revolutionizing the nootropic and cognitive health industry with sharp nootropic powder and patent-pending bright daily capsules, powered by NeuroBloom. If you struggle with focusing, think of Sharp as brain food that supports concentration. Sharp works with your natural brain chemistry to provide a heightened sense of well-being that can delay cognitive decline and also increase mood. Bomar Sharp tastes amazing and comes in many different flavors, available in caffeinated and non-caffeinated versions. While Sharp is a short-term aid in cognitive health, think of Bright Daily Capsules as a way to improve overall brain health and prevent cognitive decline long-term. As we age, so does our brain. Supplementing with Bright has the potential to delay this aging process and helps your brain function optimally. Stay ahead of the curve and order yours today at bomarnutrition.com and save $5 off with code GENIUS5. So it has a biological basis or a structure or a cell type that identified that all three different modalities would use? No, I mean, I mean it is clear that, that visual, so star compass and sun compass is a visual compass, so there you will need the, the opsins and the, and the photoreceptor cells in your, in your retina, so in your eye. But for the magnetic field, it has been a lot less clear, but there's quite a lot of evidence accumulates moment that a molecule called a cryptochrome may be able to detect the Earth's magnetic field through an electron spin-based mechanism, at least in vitro. So like when we, basically one of the things I have been involved together with Peter Hall, Christiane Timmel, and Stuart McKenzie from Oxford, they are groups. We have been involved in making this protein from the bird. So we extracted the sequence, so the information of how to make this protein from the bird genome. This protein is normally made in the bird's eyes. And basically, we then made it in a cell culture. And then we asked the cell culture to produce this molecule. And then we actually measured that this molecule is magnetically sensitive when we have it in isolation. So that we have recently published in nature that that is actually a fact. Huh. So which of these mechanisms, again, is the least understood or, you know, the magnetoreception? 
the magnetic yeah, sensing. How is that accomplished? I thought there was like tiny grains inside cells that I guess light up and uh, provide the magnetic reception. Or how does it work? No, there is no good evidence for that in any bird at the moment. There is much more evidence supporting that the critical molecule is a cryptochrome protein that is sitting in the bird's eyes. In the and specifically, we think it's a molecule called cryptochrome four. And that one is located only in specific photoreceptor cells. So these are the cells that detect light in your, in your eye. They are sitting in there. And when light is shone on this molecule, it uses this light energy to move an electron within this protein. Then you get two unpaired electrons. And electrons have a characteristic called spin. That means that they are basically well, spinning, and when they are together, they always spin anti-parallel, but when they are now moved so that they are unpaired, they will start spinning anti-parallel, but over time, they can start spinning parallel, then anti-parallel, then parallel, and actually, because they are charged, the Earth's magnetic field, or any stronger magnetic field as well, will influence the likelihood of them spinning parallel or anti-parallel, and the more that spin anti-parallel, the more biochemical products you are expected to get in that cell. And the more they spin anti-parallel, the sooner that molecule will get back to the ground state. So you basically generate a quantum mechanical chemical compass. And there's quite a lot of evidence for this now, that this is most likely to be the explanation. But as always in science, it's very difficult to come up with an bulletproof, definitive, it cannot be discussed anymore, proof. I understand, you know, a photon being absorbed and an electron going into an excited state or in an atom, but um, how do you change spin? How does that occur? That, that simply happens spontaneously if those electrons move away from each other. So basically they move over a distance of about two nanometers. So, so one of the electron moves to a completely different atom within this protein and because it is now located on an amino acid called tryptophan about two nanometers away from the flavin where it actually comes from the tryptophan and goes to the flavin. So there's one more on the flavin and there's one lacking on the tryptophan. That means there are orbitals where there's only one electron. Normally there should be two. And when they are alone, then these two electrons are close enough that their spins still influence each other, but far enough away that they can get out of synchronization. So basically they change their spins spontaneously back and forth. And depending on the direction of the Earth's magnetic field, how often this change and with which frequencies these changes happen are influenced by the Earth's magnetic field. Hmm. And that um, can be measured. I mean, that we have, we have basically <laughs> measured that that is taking place in this molecule. But where is this happening, though? In the brain of the bird or a special organ-like In the retina, in the, in the eye, in the photoreceptor cells in the eye. Is this process activated by certain wavelengths of light, or yes. when does it occur? This molecule is mainly activated by blue light. And if you go into the brain of a bird, you can see that magnetic compass information is processed in a small part of a bird's visual system. This brain area is called cluster N. And basically, if that area doesn't work, the bird cannot use its magnetic compass, but it can use its star compass and its sun compass because that is processed in different visual areas. But the fact that magnetic compass orientation is processed in a visual area 
very strongly implicate that the primary sensors must be in the um, if blue light activates this particular modality, then I understand why they would migrate at night, but how is that information preserved or translated so that the other systems can utilize it? Well, there is also light at night. Humans are, are diurnal animals. They are, we are not adapted to see particularly well at night, but even our rod system, well, so our night vision system, is good enough that you, if you go out on a moonless night on an open field, and get used to the darkness for 20 minutes or half an hour, you can see enough to walk on that field. And that's because there's always light. And our night vision system can use these few photons to still make a picture good enough for you to walk on a field. So basically, that it goes on at night does not prevent a light-activated mechanism in principle to work. That is not a problem in principle. Now, you could, of course, say, well, are there enough photons at night? Well, there are too many unknowns at the moment to definitively answer this question. But because as part of the bird's visual area is activated, it is highly likely that that's the case. Well, what about according to the moon cycle, a new moon versus a full moon? Well, there are, of course, more photons when the moon is on the sky. But the moon is a very bad orientation cue because its apparent movement across the sky, or, or its actual movement across the sky, that is very irregular and very, it's not a very good cue for geographical navigation. And it's only available half of the time, half of the night. So basically, a lot of tests have been done whether birds can use the moon for navigation and orientation. And most of those studies, the vast majority of those studies, says that birds cannot use the moon for orientation directly. But the moon may help providing photons for the bird's magnetic compass. What kind of wavelengths of light are available at night, which is the predominant ones? All, all the wavelengths are available. I mean, the starlight is white, seems white to us. And white light is generally having a broad spectrum covering most of the visual area, a visual spectrum. So there are all kinds of visual spectrum light available even in on a starry night sky, because the stars are suns, of course. Well, during the day, I would think that our sun, I mean, it, it would blast out all the other signals and all the other sources of light. Dominate, and you right. get you know, different wavelengths during the morning hours versus the afternoon hours. So is that taken yeah. into account? Does that change the bird's activity during the day? I don't think that has been tested directly. But I mean, of course, once the sun is away, then the starlight that we get are from stars that are available. I mean, the reason why there are special colors when the sun goes down has to do with, with how those waves are kind of breaking in the atmosphere. So, but that phenomenon you don't see on starlight. Right, but I just wondered during the day, is there different behaviors? You know, 9 a.m., wherever the birds are, it may be very different from 3 p.m. Because the nature of the light may, it, you know, it may look very differently afternoon versus morning. Well, these night migratory songbirds, they don't fly and navigate on migration at night, at daytime. So that I cannot test. And actually, we have some evidence that during the day, they may not be able to use this mechanism because during the day, the cells in which these cryptochromes are located, they are used for, for daytime vision. So for color vision or for 
movement detection and various other things that, that these cells can be used for. And therefore, and during the day, the normal visual system via the opsin would be much, much stronger than the cryptochrome signal. So it's not likely that birds can use this mechanism in under high light intensities, like daylight intensities. But at night, because they are in cones, and cones are the type of bull receptor cells that are only involved in daytime vision and is not involved in nighttime vision, the cells, therefore, they, they don't affect the membrane potential. They don't, they don't affect the signaling of those cells at night. So the cryptochrome signal could then dominate at night, but it's unlikely to dominate at day. But you mentioned that as long as one of three systems are working, they can navigate. So yeah. do you think they're gathering and storing any information during the days? And if so, where and what and how? Well, I, they need a feedback more or less constantly when they fly. There is some release experiments that indicate that birds check their flight direction at least every five minutes or so. So they cannot like store compass information for very long. Well, they may be able to, to some degree, if they have other references, but the primary mechanism that they need for flying during the night, it needs to work at night under those conditions. It cannot rely on some reading it has done during the day and then use that during the night. That's highly unlikely. Well, what information do you think it is getting during the day that's translating to the night migration? Anything? Or is it, again, it's, it's such a robust system that at night they just use it and they migrate and go and it, they don't need any day information? Yeah, that's what I, that is the most likely explanation, yes. Okay. So in terms of the magnetoreception, though, is there any information on how that's happening? Uh, what do you mean by that question? Oh, the magnetoreception is, is the, the mechanisms you described, does that cover the magnetoreception components of this, or is this more of the, uh, or other components of the navigation? You know, the electrons spin, uh, no, the electrons moving away, et cetera. What I described with the cryptochromes, that is highly likely to be the magnetoreception mechanism inside the birds that they use at night. And there's highly likely not to be another one for their magnetic compass. What do you estimate as the base sensitivity or the fidelity of their ability to pick up changes in the magnetic field directionally? Oh, directionally. I mean, we, we have done some experiments where, so they use the inclination angle. That means they use the angle between the magnetic field lines and the earth's surface. Yeah. And at the poles, it's 90 degrees, so it's straight up. So straight up doesn't give you any directional information, right? Because it's basically south in all directions at the magnetic pole, right? So if you give them a 90 degree vertical field, they can't use their magnetic compass to orient. And if you don't give them visual input, so you prevent them from seeing the stars and the sun, the birds are randomly oriented. Now you can ask, how many degrees do I need to make the inclination angle different from straight up? And we have shown that if you have a 85 degree inclination, so just five degrees different from vertical, the birds can use their magnetic compass as well as they can where we live, where, where the angle is 67 degrees. So five degrees is at least the accuracy they can determine the direction of the magnetic field lines with. We tested them under 88 degrees inclination, so only two degrees different from vertical. And there we could not see orientation. So we think the precision is somewhere on the order of two, two to five degrees in determining the inclination angle. Do birds, so how do they know how far down to migrate? Do they have a certain, I mean, do they migrate until they can't migrate anymore? And so they, they <laughs> hang out in a narrow band near the, near the equator? Do any 
when you cross the equator, you go where it reverses and it starts going down again? Yes, there are many that cross the equator in the European African migration system, at least. So yes, and it's a very interesting what they actually do on the equator. There are very few experiments at the equator because it's not safe places to do experiments mostly. So not much has been done. But yes, they, they can cross the, the magnetic equator. How do they know when to stop? Well, I mean, most evidence, there is some evidence that suggests it might be slightly more complicated. But most evidence suggests that young birds on their first autumn migration, they are born with a time and a direction program. So they are born fly with the information fly, let's say, three weeks, 212 degrees, and then two weeks, 160 degrees or whatever, and then stop. And that's very imprecise. And if you look at the ring recoveries, the first migration is not particularly precise for most species, at least. Now, if you look at an adult bird, we now know that they imprint on the magnetic and other sensory conditions of the place they were born. And they also imprint, so they remember the magnetic cues, the, all the other information about the place they spent the winter. And once they have done the trip once, they migrate between a specific breeding uh, territory and wintering ter territory, at least for many species. And there are examples of birds that has proven to have an accuracy of centimeters over 10,000 kilometers if they have done the trip once already. So that's an example, crazy. yeah, that's crazy. And I mean, an example of that is a swallow, for instance, a barn swallow. It breeds in a barn in Germany, let's say, and then it flies down to Africa and it will sleep on a branch in a swamp in Africa. And now the next year, it will breed in the same barn in Germany, and it will be found on the same branch sleeping in the winter quarter in the winter area. And that basically means that that bird has centimeter precision over 10,000 kilometers, but only after it has done the whole trip once. I mean, it's not nice to do, but if a certain bird lands in a certain tree, it is that precise. Has anyone tried cutting off the branch on which the bird would land and see if it picks another one or now, you know, if the tree gets cut down? Yeah, it'll, it'll pick a neighboring one. That's amazing. So once they pick a specific spot, they go to that exact spot if it's undisturbed? Yeah. Many species do that, at least. Not all species, but many species do that. How much of this um, program and its precision is passed on to its offspring? It sounds like you're saying there's a, a generalized plan per species, and then they, they refine it. and They make it exact once they do the trip once. That's exactly right. So they have an inherited base program that is good enough to bring them into the approximate wintering area of their species. And then during their first navigational journey or migration journey, they add a very detailed and multi-sensory map to their navigation system. And it's learned. So that's not inherited. That's learned. Are the mechanisms different for the generic plan versus the specific map? Or are they the same? Yeah, I mean, the compass tools are the same, but they add things like smell maps, kind of visual maps of the landscapes, probably kind of magnetic information about the landscapes they have flown over. And it has been shown that they can also interpolate, interpolate that to an unknown location once they have flown to Africa and, and has come back. 
then if you move them outside of their known range, they can still use the magnetic changes to predict that they are too far east or too far west, and they can then correct for displacements either by wind or by scientists and go back to the place they wanted to go to based on a map. And that map includes magnetic cues, but it's not only magnetic cues. Hmm. Very interesting. So what are some of the big puzzles that you're looking to still solve or fill in right now? Well, we would like to get closer to a definitive proof that it is actually the cryptochrome 4 molecule that does this. This is very difficult because you can't breed these birds in captivity, so it's not easy to make like a knockout migratory bird, just like you can do a knockout mouse or drosophila or zebrafish. That's very difficult with, with these birds, so that's a challenge. We, of course, would also like to know, yeah, from an evolutionary perspective, approximately how did this magnetic sensitivity appear? Things like that. So there, there are many, many open questions still. We would also like to know, you know, just having the primary sensory molecule doesn't change the membrane potential of, this, of the nerve cell. So you need what's called a biochemical reaction pathway or, or, or signaling pathway. So the cryptochrome molecule must interact with other molecules. And we have some indications what the first interaction partners could be. But we would like to understand the whole process from the light activation of the cryptochrome to the cell signal. And that is very unknown at the moment. Is this cryptochrome setup uh, available in animals that don't fly? Or how many different birds? And you know, what's the variation of the system between birds that migrate? A very, very few bird species have been studied. So that's very difficult to say definitively. I mean, these cryptochromes probably exist in most birds. Cryptochrome 4 also exists in fish and reptiles. They do not exist in mammals. In mammals, you have cry 1 and cry 2, cryptochrome 1 and cryptochrome 2, and they are involved in our inner clock, but at the moment at least do not seem to be involved in magnetoreception because they seem not to bind the flavin, and this flavin is, is a critical part of this magnetosensory mechanism. So if that's not there, then it can't be magnetically sensitive. Of course, the fact that people have not seen it bound doesn't necessarily mean that it cannot bind. But until we have evidence that it binds, then these other two cryptochromes are not very strong candidates. And that's the only ones that humans have. Humans don't have cryptochrome 4. And as far as we know, humans don't have a conscious magnetic sense, at least. At least I don't have one. I, I cannot detect when the magnetic field is, is changed by my coils. I have tried to sit in there and try to determine it, but I cannot. Hmm, okay. What are some of the most exciting things that, that you're, uh, you're trying to figure out right now with the system? No, I mean, this is, this is trying to see what are the biochemical interaction partners. So how does a cryptochrome signal lead to a nervous system signal? That is one thing. We are trying to see if we can prove that the cryptochromes are really the primary sensory molecule. And, well, there's a whole bunch of other things we would really like to see if there is what the nervous code is for the magnetic field. And we would really like to see, we have seen that certain radio frequency magnetic fields disturb the bird's ability to use a magnetic compass. And for conservation purposes, we would really like to know what frequency ranges actually disturb these birds' magnetic compass. 
and we would like to know whether that has effects on their life in the wild. Nobody knows that. Yeah, I wonder if you know certain wavelengths of light would oversaturate this ability and stop it from working, or again, the absence of certain wavelengths for some reasons would affect them. I guess if they're migrating through areas where, let's say, there's uh, you know a lot of pollution, I wonder if that affects them or other factors like that, man-made type stuff. I think the most likely man-made effect that could be on the magnetic compass is actually radio frequency electromagnetic noise. That may affect the bird's compasses quite severely, but we don't know yet because all experiments done with radio frequency fields published so far, they were done in the lab. They were not done in the wild. Hmm. Henrik, this is super interesting work. Um, what's the best way for people to find out more about what you're doing? Well, uh, they can look at our website if they want to. If they put in my name, they'll find that. We have just written an article for Scientific American in uh, in April 2022. So there's an issue there where you can read some of, about some of this for kind of a lay audience. And I also wrote a review in Nature in 2018 where we tried to summarize kind of the scientific knowledge at that stage. And, and I think that could potentially be interesting for people to read about. Well, very good. All right. So people can Google Henrik Moritzson. And uh, Henrik, again, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Do you struggle with concentration? Have you ever thought of your brain health long term? Bomar Nutrition is revolutionizing the nootropic and cognitive health industry with sharp nootropic powder and patent pending bright daily capsules powered by Neurobloom. If you struggle with focusing, think of sharp as brain food that supports concentration. Sharp works with your natural brain chemistry to provide a heightened sense of well-being that can delay cognitive decline and also increase mood. Bomar Sharp tastes amazing and comes in many different flavors, available in caffeinated and non-caffeinated versions. While Sharp is a short-term aid in cognitive health, think of Bright Daily Capsules as a way to improve overall brain health and prevent cognitive decline long-term. As we age, so does our brain. Supplementing with Bright has the potential to delay this aging process and helps your brain function optimally. Stay ahead of the curve and order yours today at bomarnutrition.com and save $5 off with code GENIUS5. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.